Good morning. The scripture reading um, is from Acts chapter 16, verses 4 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Myasia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Christ Communities Downtown Campus. Uh, My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are thrilled uh, that you are with us this morning, and honestly, even more thrilled that you would come on, like, World Cup Sunday, so thank you, any soccer fans here. Uh, We are so glad that you said yes to church, and uh, I'm sure there's, like, bonus points or something for that for you in heaven. Summer is one of my favorite seasons. I've said before in this church, but I am a sun creature, love the sun, love bright weather, absolutely love summer. And summer is also seemingly to me uh, the season of love, or maybe more specifically, the season of wedding. So just out of curiosity, has anyone been to a wedding yet this summer? Anyone been to a wedding? All right, some folks have been to weddings. Uh, Anyone been in a wedding yet this summer? Anyone? All right, a few over here. Anyone uh, like going to be in one, maybe coming up soon, right around the corner? All right, all right, all right. I uh, was thinking about kind of weddings this week. I was at a wedding myself uh, this weekend, and so thinking about weddings, and realized after I did the arithmetic, I have been in uh, 16 weddings in my short life, y'all. I know what it is. I'm on my way to 27 dresses, right? Uh, But I've been in 16 weddings uh, in my lifetime. And if you look at the screen, uh, you can kind of scroll through some of the highlights of these weddings. Uh, so lots of weddings through the years, lots of great weddings. And, you know, 16 weddings, that means a bunch of different boutonnieres, um, a bunch of rented suits, uh, lots of dancing with, like, cousin so-and-so that maybe you'll never see again. And, that, I mean, that was really an exceptional wedding. Uh, but, it, but it's been great. It's been great to be in so many celebrations uh, with folks on days that mean a whole lot to them, really significant experiences. And if there's one thing I've learned, again, is maybe a wedding expert, you could say, I don't know, I'll say it, Um, but I've done this for a while. If there's one thing I've learned from being in weddings, um, it's that every wedding is a bit different. Every bride and groom is different. Um, So that means, of course, every wedding is different. And and the way that I think uh, groomsmen or bridesmaids can care well for a bride or a groom really varies based on the temperament of the bride or groom. 
So I've been in weddings where folks want to recount all the details, you know, multiple times. We rehearse the itinerary. Does everyone have their printed itinerary? You know, we're going to nail this. I've been in weddings where people want to forget about all that. You know, it's just I'm here to enjoy the day. Don't trouble me with those details. I've been in weddings where we need some help with an unruly family member. Uh, any weddings with like bouncers, you know? Uh, so I've been in those weddings. I've been in others where people kind of need some extra help calming down, getting to sleep before it begins, you know, the night before. Uh, I've had weddings where folks want to like pray every hour hour on the hour, because this is such a significant day and significant event. I got those crazy friends. Y'all love it. Uh, and I've been in weddings where people just want to play games in a green room leading up to it, right? So there's, you know, cards or Catan or different things backstage. I love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, brides and grooms need different things in the moment before they say, I do. And so to be a good friend, a good bridesmaid, a good groomsman, um, I've recognized through the years that the care I provide uh, it, it needs to vary. I need to support the bride or the groom in the way that makes them feel supported. I need to encourage them in a way that makes them feel encouraged. I need to calm them in a way that makes them feel calm. And that got me thinking about this statement, which I believe is true. Um, if you're going to love people, you have to meet them where they are. If you're going to love people, you got to meet them where they are. If you're going to love a bride or a groom well that you're supporting, you got to meet them where they are. you got to support them how they are, the way they feel supported on that day. And if you're going to love people, you have to meet them where they are. And this isn't just something that good you know, bridesmaids or groomsmen know. This isn't just something that good friends or family members know. I would argue this is something God models for us in Acts 16. And so this morning, as we continue our chapter-by-chapter -chapter study of the book of Acts, this series that we've called Sent, a look kind of like chunk-by-chunk chunk of this testimony of the church in its earliest days, this book of Acts written by a guy named Luke who was there, saw it unfold, wrote it down, and documented it. As we continue in that journey, I think we're going to see this morning from Acts 16 that Jesus meets us where we are that Jesus meets us where we are. He meets us in our highs and in our lows. He meets us in good days and on bad days, and he gives us what we need. And because there is so much detail uh, to cover today and so much ground uh, to chart our way through, and I don't want to miss a single detail of this brilliant account, I'm ready for us to dive in. Uh, so we're going to be, as I've said, in Acts 16. Carly already read some for us. It's on page 925 of our community Bibles. And if you'll join me there, I'll catch you up on where we've been, and then, then we'll get going. Um, last Sunday, we studied Acts 15, and we were reminded that the message of Jesus was always intended for everyone, everywhere. Uh, this was what was at debate last week in that council that we studied. And so folks were wondering, hey, is the message of Jesus more for these people or more for that people? And the early church leaders got together and said, no, 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 it's for all people. And so we're going to make sure that the gospel continues to be able to be preached and received by all people, regardless of background, regardless of income level, regardless of gender. We want our space to be a, folks where all, or a place where all folks can gather to worship Jesus Christ. And so they came up with some solutions to help calm some tension that was there and said, hey, this is going to be a place where everyone can gather and worship Jesus. That's what we studied last week. And then in what Carly just read for us, we heard that Paul and his companions are now traveling through the Macedonian region and communicating the outcome of that council. So they're going place to place and said, hey, I know you've heard that like Jews and Gentiles can't get along and they can't mix and they're not allowed to sit next to each other, but we've had a council, we've reached a decision, here's how we're going to make our spaces a place where everyone can worship. And so they're traveling around communicating the outcome of this council that took place in Jerusalem. And along their journeys, they wind up in Macedonia in a city called Philippi. 
And that takes us to verse 13 in Acts 16. So they're there in Philippi. And then Luke writes, on the Sabbath day, we, so he's there with Paul and Silas and the other folks, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods and a worshiper of God. And so Paul and his companions, they arrive in Philippi, the city in Macedonia, and they go to a place outside the city where they assume people would be gathered on a Sabbath day to pray. Um, this is just kind of the kind of thing they expected. And of course, they're there traveling. They're trying to travel and tell people about Jesus. And so they thought, hey, if it's a Sabbath and folks are gathering to pray, maybe those are some good folks that are already spiritually interested. Let's tell them a bit about what Jesus has done. And so they get there and they meet this lady called Lydia. Now, Lydia is a truly fascinating and significant player in the story of the early church. I believe uh, that her influence cannot be overstated. Uh, when Paul and his friends first meet her, they realize that she is this well-to-do businesswoman. Specifically, the text says she's a dealer in like purple goods or purple cloth, which if we understand history correctly, is a way of saying that she like deals luxury goods for folks that work in the Roman Empire, for like the elite. So maybe another way to think about it, you know, she's got a store or two on Fifth Avenue in New York, and she's selling Gucci and Versace to the movers and shakers, right? And Lydia's doing well. She's doing quite well. And another thing our text indicates is that Lydia seems to be the head of her household. So this could mean maybe she's single, maybe she's widowed, but there's no mention of like a husband for Lydia anywhere in Scripture, and it doesn't seem that she owes any of her success to a husband. And so this is something you've got to grasp, church. By like first century standards, Lydia might be one of the earliest like self-made women. Uh, she's, she's done really well. She's reached the top rung of the ladder. She's an entrepreneurial business leader. She's wealthy and successful, uh, socially prominent, generous, um, and then, again, due to the fact that she's outside the city on the Sabbath praying, and because our text says she's a, like a God worshiper or a God fear, and remember we've talked about these folks, they're like Gentiles that are kind of interested in the Jewish God, but not really sure, you know, how they relate or how they handle it. So, it's okay. so she's broadly spiritual. So again, she's wealthy, prominent, generous, uh, high social status, spiritual. Uh, I think we could say that Lydia was the Oprah of her day. Uh, she had it going on. And yet with all that, she finds herself... I just had to throw one over there. I love her. Uh, with all that, she finds herself still in a position where she feels like she's on the outside looking in. Again, I'm a Gentile looking in on this Jewish God. I know that there's a lot of stuff I've got going for me, but there's also some spiritual truth I don't quite understand. There's got to be maybe more. I've reached the peak of success, but man, I, I'm still curious. I'm still fascinated about what's ultimately true or about who God might be. If there is a God, I, I want to know this God. And so Paul meets her outside Philippi, and he tells her the good news about Jesus, about who Jesus is, and Jesus' life and death and resurrection and the difference that that has made in history. And in verse 14, it says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart, opened her heart to Paul's message. And she and the members of her household were baptized, and then she invited Paul and his companions into their home. She said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded them to join her in her home. 
So this self-made businesswoman living the good life who found herself nevertheless curious about spiritual truth. She's met by the Apostle Paul, and he introduces her to Jesus, and Jesus breaks into her heart. And notice this. Lydia's transformation with Jesus, it doesn't doesn't just stop with her finding Christ or finding salvation, but in light of the generous love that she hears about, and in light of the transforming love that Paul says is hers in Christ, uh, she responds to her new spiritual family through hospitality. Uh, she persuades Paul and his companions to join her in her home. And this wasn't just like, hey, come over for some leftovers I've got sitting around. In a very real sense, Lydia's house becomes the headquarters of the church in Philippi, the home base, the launching ground. I mean, this is where the movement that's going to grow in Philippi, and maybe you've heard of Philippi before because Paul writes what? A letter to the Philippians. So this church makes it, and it's a good church. Paul's rags on some other churches, but Philippians get like some thumbs up in their letter. This church of big influence, launches out of Lydia's home after she has this dramatic conversion when she meets Jesus down by the river on a Sabbath day. I mean, Lydia is a mover and a shaker, and her conversion and her hospitality and her generosity propels the church in its earliest days. Now, we said at the outset of our time this morning that Jesus meets us where we are, and we're going to look at a few people in Acts 16 to get a fuller sense of what it means that Jesus meets us where we are. But first and foremost, I think Lydia's story teaches us that Jesus meets us in our success. Right? Jesus meets us in our success, meets us when things are going well, uh, when the sun is shining, when we feel like we're on top of the world. Jesus meets us there. And perhaps that's your story. I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know, I had a coming off a really good week. I had some stuff go well and kind of the place where I work and the place where I live with the people that I'm around or the folks that I care about most. I've, I've had some success there this week. I've accomplished something, you know, or maybe you've got a real like sweet loft downtown. If that's the case, invite me over or like really nice house. You know, I love dinner, uh, but, or you've won some awards. You've got roles in certain organizations or, you know, you attend church regularly. You're someone that your peers respect. You've got a great reputation right? I don't know. There's all kinds of ways to measure success. Lydia seemed to have them all. And yet, even in the midst of success, you're like, gosh, I, you know, I could use a little bit of deeper comfort spiritually. I could use some more truth. I'm not sure that I know who God is fully, right? Maybe there was a moment in your past where you hit success and you realized there's got to be more and you found the Lord. Or maybe you're here this morning because you're, hey, super successful, but gosh, I'm curious about what people of faith say about who Jesus is. I'm looking for a fuller explanation. Regardless of where you might be or how successful you might feel you are, I think Lydia's story teaches us that Jesus meets us in our success. And notice this, Lydia, when she meets Jesus, even as a successful businesswoman on top of the world, her newly found faith doesn't compel her to quit her job. Um, After meeting Jesus, she doesn't abandon her business or her social circle or her spheres of influence but instead she keeps working. She keeps interacting with those that she knows, but she brings with her into those spaces a reoriented perspective that she's now embraced in light of embracing the truth of who Jesus is. Lydia experiences a profound transformation, and some might say that she moves from seeing work as something you do like for compensation so that you can consume more things into something that you do to propel a mission that's worthwhile, to bring good to the world, to contribute to the flourishing of your city. And so Jesus meets Lydia, Lydia meets Jesus, and her life changes 
And she makes a lasting mark on the history of our faith tradition. Again, the home of the Philippian church. She's mentioned in other letters that Paul writes. Jesus meets us in our success. He meets Lydia in her success and introduces her to life as it was meant to be lived, full life with him, and it changes everything. I mean, that's the first lesson our text teaches us this morning, that Jesus can meet us in our success. But there's more. So let's keep reading. So after Paul and his companions get introduced to Lydia, after they kind of move in there for an extended stay and they're at the big house and, you know, they've got a home base for the mission, uh, they keep going out in the city to introduce more people to Jesus. And as they're walking through the city, Luke writes in verse 16 uh, that we were met by a slave girl uh, who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain through fortune-telling. And so she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. So Paul and his companions, they're staying at Lydia's house. They're going out each day to tell folks about Jesus. And somewhere along the way, they pick up this kind of this person that trails them, you know, and just yells, Hey, these men are servants of the Most High God. You should listen to them, right? Uh, and so this girl, though, if Lydia is the epitome of success in kind of the first century world, if she has made it and has it all going for her, this slave girl is in a really, really different spot. She's described as a slave girl in the text. We don't get her name. And I would argue this morning that she's maybe doubly enslaved or has two kind of different things enslaving her. One would be this kind of spirit of divination, if this is like some evil spirit that's on her or something that she has, but she's able in some degree to tell the future, right? So that's what they mean, spirit of divination. So she's oppressed by some kind of an evil spirit. That's kind of one, um, one level of slavery that she's experiencing. But the other, in a very real sense, is she's enslaved to some human masters, that are using, again, whatever this is that makes her kind of a fortune teller, uh, these human masters are leveraging that for their own profit. And you can see that she brought, what does it say? She had brought her owners much gain by fortune telling, right? So she's, they're making a lot of money off of this slave that they have who they're kind of leveraging this, this thing that oppresses her and using that to kind of sell it to others and say, hey, here's someone that can tell your fortune. And again, if Lydia is the epitome of a self-made woman in the first century, I think this slave girl here in Acts 16 helps to remind us that in all times and in all places, uh, there are people who are abused, there are people who are exploited, uh, there's people who are mistreated, uh, who are treated as if they're less than human, as if they don't matter, you're used by others for their own benefit, and Jesus notices us all, doesn't he? And he's not merely interested in building relationships with the successful and connected, but he's also wildly in love with everyone that everyone else ignores. So our text says that Paul, having become kind of annoyed, which here doesn't mean like annoyed like your little brother and sister go away, but it's more like I'm troubled, I'm disturbed. You know, this spirit's been following her. Finally, it just, it reaches the breaking point for Paul. And so he turns to her and he says to the spirit, he says, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And in that very instant, Luke writes, it comes out. And so Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, again, however this works supernaturally, he frees this girl from one kind of the oppression, the oppression of the Spirit. He frees the slave girl from that in an instant. And the girl was freed, at least from from that spiritual oppression. And I have to imagine, and again, this is my speculation, but I have to imagine that after that moment of, holy cow, I'm in my right mind now, I'm not driven crazy. I don't have this spirit on me. I have to think that in the moment soon after that, it seems likely to me that Paul and his companions would have taken her to Lydia's house, 
They would have introduced her to Lydia. They would have introduced her to the other worshipers there. They would have introduced her to Jesus and said, here's the person that gave us the power to free you from the Spirit. And in some way, she becomes incorporated again into that early church that's just starting to grow in Philippi. I mean, I love that, right? Can you imagine, you know, Oprah alongside someone who was impressed in the community. I absolutely love the church that's forming here in Philippi. But there was one problem. When the girl was released from the power of the evil spirit, she lost her ability to do whatever this fortune-telling thing was, right? And now her owners, who had profited off that ability for so many years, they're really upset because they can't make that money anymore. Paul's meddling in their business, and they would not stand for it, which led them to advocate for Paul's arrest. And so we see that beginning in verse 19. Uh, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows, they threw them into prison. So Paul and Silas, Paul and his company, with the power of the Holy Spirit, they free this girl from the oppression of an evil spirit. But as often tends to be the case, the oppressors fight back. They don't let justice win the day easily. They claw and they grasp for the power and profit that they feel like they're losing. And so Paul and his companions, they pay the price for doing the right thing. And I think if this episode with the slave girl teaches us anything, it's this. Big idea, Jesus meets us where we are. Yes, as Lydia teaches us, Jesus meets us in our success. But as is the case with the slave girl, Jesus meets us in our injustice. Jesus meets us in our injustice. He meets us in moments of powerlessness. He meets us in moments when we're trapped, um, in moments when we feel like no one cares about us or no one notices us. Jesus meets us in our injustice. And while I imagine that it's certainly true today, just knowing our crowd that gathers here that some of us can relate to Lydia, I know that it's also very true that there are many of us in this room who could say, gosh, I relate in some degree to the experience of this slave girl. I know what it's like to be manipulated. I know what it's like to be abused. I know what it's like to be used by someone else. And if that's you, I want you to hear that Jesus is able to meet you even there. Um, And he wants to offer you the fullness of life that only he can provide. He wants to meet you in your pain. He wants to meet you in your shame. He wants to meet you in any guilt that you have maybe of being abused or being an abuser. He wants to meet you in that feeling that you're so utterly broken and that you're beyond repair. He wants to meet you even there because that's what he does here with this slave girl. And perhaps what you've done or what's been done to you feels like part of your identity that can never be redeemed or a weight on your shoulders that can never be lifted or just a secret that you have that can never be shared. But what I want all of us to hear this morning is that each and every one of those thoughts, the thoughts that this can't be shared, this can't be redeemed, this can't be ever spoken about or else there's too much shame that floods in, any of those thoughts um, are lies that are designed to keep us from the truth of the love power and care given to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
mean, to be very clear, I don't want to diminish the severity and significance of injustice in our lives. I don't want to say that abuse and trauma endured is some small thing. I mean, it leaves very real scars, doesn't it? Our trauma in many ways shapes us. I'm not here to say that it doesn't. And yet, I am here to say that it doesn't keep us from God's care, doesn't make us unlovable or unworthy to Jesus. Uh, Jesus regularly sought out those who had been marginalized and impressed during his time on earth, and we see it happening here in the story of his early followers. They do the same thing. Jesus meets us wherever we are, in our success, yes, but in our injustice as well, in hurts that we experience and in our sorrows. And so if you're, <coughs> pardon me, if you're here this morning, and you find yourself resonating with the story of the slave girl. You find yourself identifying in some way with this experience of being abused or mistreated or maligned for some reason. Can I ask you one thing? And I know it'll sound like a big thing, but can I ask one thing? Uh, that you would choose not to remain silent about whatever it is, that burden that you're carrying. That you would speak out to someone you could trust, be it someone in this church or a pastor or a friend or a counselor or a co-worker or a family member, but would you share it with someone who could model Jesus's love to you, who could remind you that you're not unlovable or not unworthy, and who could point you toward a space or an environment or a person with which whom you could find hope and healing? I mean, can I ask you that this morning? If you're here and you'd say, gosh, I want to identify with the abuse experience there. Jesus meets us where we are. He can meet us in injustice we experience, and he wants to meet us there. That's what we see in the profound length that he would go to free this slave girl from two oppressors, right? A spirit and these people that own her and to give her a new spiritual family, this early church that's forming there in Philippi. So we've seen it. Jesus meets us where we are. meets us in our success meets us in injustice we experience, meets us in our injustice, but that's not all. Uh, there's a third thing, and we've got to keep reading to find it. Uh, but before we get there, let me just, again, get us back into our narrative, back in our story. So Paul and his companions, they've met Lydia, they've moved into her house, they've freed this slave girl from her oppressors, and now they've been thrown into prison. And I want to tell you a bit about first century prison just so you can understand what's about to happen next in our story. I learned this this week. I didn't know this. But in the first century, when you wanted to build like a prison and really, really like have a, a dark place to put folks, you would build like maybe the prison offices or the jailer might live up above the prison, but then you would build like a big hole. So think like a rounded hole in the ground. And it was down in the bottom of this, again, a hole with curved walls that you would put your prisoners. And this was intentionally designed so that it'd be really dark, of course, really damp, but also, and this was the new piece to me, but let your, let your imagination run free. It's also made that way so that like waste and other things might dribble down there and collect in the prison. You get what I'm saying, right? Thank you so much. You read my mind, John. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Uh, but it was designed so that, and they wouldn't give you a cup of water in a first century prison. They would throw you in the pit and they would let everything just roll down there and collect in the bottom. And so again, I was thinking this week and it felt like, I don't know, a first century Shawshank Redemption, right? Have you seen this movie? Just like Andy Dufresne stuck in that tunnel. And that's where you were. And that's where you are chained up in this pit designed to collect like human waste, everything else there in the bottom, dark, dusty, you are trapped there. And it's in that setting where Paul and Silas find themselves, again, as a result of freeing the slave girl. So it's in that setting that they find themselves. And notice what they do there. We see it in verse 25. 
Our text says that they prayed and sang hymns together. So they're down there in this awful, awful experience, and they're praying and singing hymns together, which is remarkable to me. Just absolutely remarkable. It's, it's just wild, but that's not the wildest thing that happens. So while they are praying and praising and singing hymns, suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that all the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And isn't that nuts? There was a friend of mine in teaching team who said it this way. He's like, I love this. He said, two people praise, but everyone's chains fell off. And it's like, that's a sermon in a sentence right there. But all the doors in the prison are open, right? Two people are praising. The doors fly open. Everyone's loosed and freed. And here's the best I can do in my imagination. So I imagine this happens. And again, they're down in a dark hole. It's at night anyway. So, I mean, you're, you've just been left there. You've forgotten it's dark. Doors open. Chains fall off. I imagine that makes a little bit of noise. And it wakes up the jailer. And so our text says that the jailer comes up and he sees that the door is open and all this is happening at night and he imagines that the worst case scenario has happened. The doors have flown open. I heard those chains fall off. Clearly all these prisoners have escaped. And so the jailer thinks, hey, I guess I'm not getting my Christmas bonus this year. And probably more than that, he knows that the penalty for a jailer losing a prisoner in this time was to lose their own life. I mean, this was a high-stakes game, right? If you're a jailer and you lose a prisoner, you're going to get like a death penalty right then and there. And so he's thinking, oh, my gosh, I've lost a group of prisoners. You know, this is someone everyone came out to beat up. We all throw them in here together. They asked me to keep them here, and now I see empty doors. I'm sure that they're gone. And so this jailer, in great despair, and recognizing that he lives in, again, this honor-shame culture where if you do things right, you can show your face, but if you do anything wrong, you know, you might as well never come back here. You know, we don't want to see, and there's a bad penalty that awaits. And the culture that he lives in, he decides that his only course of action, the only thing he can possibly do in light of what he believes he's lost these prisoners, he says, man, I, I guess I need to take my own life. And so he starts taking steps towards that, and in the midst of this great despair, right? Absolute despair. Uh, and, you know, maybe he's got the sword pulled. Who knows where he is in the process? But along that way, he hears a voice holler out from the prison, hey, don't harm yourself, for we are all here. And how nuts is that? I mean, in that moment, I got to imagine that the jailer let out a sigh of relief. And he has to be absolutely blown away, because what kind of prisoner stays in a prison after the chains fall off and the doors open? I mean, this is unheard of. This is absolutely nuts. But I think, again, that Paul and Silas, they knew what they were doing because the fact that they would stay, right, recognizing the penalty that awaits the jailer is what I think sets up the jailer to ask this significant question in Acts 16.30. So, oh, my gosh, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Yeah. Right? You stayed here. You saved my life. You mean you didn't leave when the chains fell off? Gosh, tell me, I heard you singing earlier and I just thought you were nuts. But now the doors have opened. Now that I see this, what must I do to be saved? And they, Paul and Silas, said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke, Paul and Silas, spoke the words of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So get this now, Acts 16, we've got Lydia, we've got the slave girls, and now like them, we have a jailer who meets Jesus and trusts Jesus for salvation, and his life is changed, right? So we started out today by saying Jesus meets us where we are. He meets us in our success. He meets us in our injustice. But finally, I believe the story of the jailer helps us to see that Jesus meets us in our defeat. 
Jesus meets us in our defeat. He meets us when we fail to follow through on our commitments. He meets us when we realize we can't come through on that promise that we made. He meets us when we realize we don't have what it takes to push the project across the finish line or when we've, gosh, we've really messed up this relationship and it feels like it's in a difficult spot. Jesus meets us in our defeat. I mean, this jailer had failed at his job. And again, because of his culture, he was certain that failure could only be met with like the most drastic action. There is no hope. I don't even need to go on. I've blown it in such a big way. My identity as a jailer is thoroughly ruined. Like, let's just give up now. And in the middle of that moment, Jesus, through Paul's willingness to stay in a prison after being freed, which is nuts, Jesus meets this jailer in his defeat. When he feels like there's no hope, utterly defeated, Jesus meets him there. I don't know about you, church, but I know I can relate to that. I mean, I mentioned already I was at a a wedding uh, this weekend, and man, there's something about friends that have known you for so long. You get talking late at night, and sure, they know all the great stories, but after long, these are these kind of friends where like everyone knows everyone else's junk. And so we get rolling back through some college memories, and man, 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 there's some bad decisions we all made. But thinking about those defeats, thinking about nights where it's like I'm driving home and it's like, how the heck did I ever get here? And who would have thought this would have happened? And what am I doing with my life? It's like, in those moments, I can say, those are moments where I was met by Jesus. Met by Jesus through words of these very friends who were at the wedding. Met by Jesus through, gosh, a gracious response from someone I'd really let down or someone I'd hurt deeply. Jesus meets us in our defeat. And whether you feel defeated because of something bad you've done or a failure at work or a failure in family or a failure in the office, I mean, who hasn't felt defeated? But our text today wants to remind you of this. Jesus wants to meet you in that defeat. And even then, he wants, us to, he wants to point us to life in him. He wants to remind us that we aren't valuable to him because of anything we've done. But even when we feel defeated, it's because of what he's done for us, showing his love for us on the cross. He wants to meet us in our defeat even there. And so as our time together today draws to a close, I want to invite us in the few minutes that remain to think about all three of these stories we've encountered today, think about them together. Because in one sense, I mean, our text in Acts 16 almost sounds like the setup for a joke, doesn't it? Like a a CEO and a witch and a jailer walk into a bar, um, or maybe more accurately walk into a church. Because in a real sense, Jesus used what happened here to draw these people together into a new spiritual family. Three different people from three different circumstances find Jesus, meets them right where they are, and gives them just what they need. And they become part of this worshiping community that's gathering at Lydia's house in Philippi that meets there. And it's a place for the people at the top of the ladder and the bottom of the ladder, for the most successful, for the down and out, for people that feel like everything's fine and for folks that feel utterly defeated. And this becomes a gospel outpost that impacts all of Macedonia. And I love how John Stott summarizes Acts 16. He writes, There are few people more diverse ethnically, socially, psychologically, and culturally than Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. And yet, Paul engaged them all with a gospel intended for all. In Acts 15, and this is what we studied last week, the church fought to ensure that the gospel would remain something for all people, not just for Jews, not just for Gentiles, not just for rich, not just for poor, but a gospel for all people from all kinds of backgrounds. And here in Acts 16, we see that happening. 
We see God pulling together a church made of a diverse group of people becoming a new part of a faith community in Philippi. Because it's true, Jesus meets us where we are. And when he meets us, he brings us together. He makes us a new family. And so now, as we prepare to approach the Lord's table and prepare to head out of here in a few minutes, right, to all the different places we'll go, to different friends and family and callings and workplaces and anywhere else we'll go this week, I want to end by just asking one question, uh, one question to frame, again, our time of reflection and our time at the table. And the question is this, if Jesus meets us where we are, where are you this morning? You know, where are you? If Jesus meets us where we are, and I believe that it's true, if Jesus will meet us where we are in success and in justice and defeat and anywhere in between, if Jesus meets us where we are, where are you this morning? Are you riding high after a big success or you feeling low because of an injustice you've endured? Are you defeated after a big failure? Where are you? And maybe more specifically, how do you need Jesus to meet you? I mean, are you longing to hear him whisper a word of comfort? Uh, do you need him to shake you up a bit and redirect you? You know, you've been on a bit of a bad path. Do you need him to, to remind you of his affirmation? Do you need him to paint, restore your imagination again of what it could look like to have full life with him? Is it just difficult for you to even imagine how you could follow Jesus in your current circumstance? Do you need fresh encouragement? Do you need true comfort? Uh, where are you this morning? Jesus meets us where we are. Where are you? And what do you need? Because what's true is that when Jesus meets us, barriers are removed and injustices are confronted and wrongs are forgiven and resources are dispensed and comfort is given and help is offered. I mean, all those things happen. So where are you and what do you need? Because this morning we begin our time by saying, if you're going to love people, you have to meet them where they are. And I'm convinced this isn't something I just learned from wedding participation. This is something that's modeled in Scripture. God meets people in Acts where they are. So where are you and what do you need today? And I know that that answer is diverse and is, just has so many different nuances as there are people in this room. And so in our few moments that remain, I would love to pray and ask God, wherever we are, he knows where all of us are, ask him to meet us each, even now and then the rest of this week in the ways that we need him to meet us. So would you join me in prayer? Man, Lord, what encouraging news it is that you meet us wherever we are. And whether we are on top of the world or that we feel like we've fallen from the top of the world and anywhere in between, God, you are there and you meet us and you pursue us. And in the same way that you went after Lydia and you went after this slave girl and you went after this jailer and wanted so desperately for them to know who you are, you are pursuing us and you want us to know your love and you want us to know your care and you want us to know full life in you. And so, God, I'm, I'm aware that there are a lot of us in this room which means there's a lot of different stories that are in the process of unfolding. There's a lot of different weeks people are coming off of and a lot of different weeks people are headed into. And so I'm asking you now because I trust you to be good and I trust you to be one who cares. I'm asking you to meet every one of us in this room in the way that we need you to meet us. I'm asking you to meet us with your love, to meet us with your correction, to meet us with your comfort, Lord. However we need to experience you, wherever we are and wherever we need you to meet us, Lord, would you show up? And would you do that thing you do? And would you remind us of your love for us and give us hope 
and healing and encouragement along the journey, Lord. I trust that you'll do that because I know that you're good, and we're asking you for it, God, and you're the master applier of your own word, so would you apply it to each of us in the way that we need? In your powerful name that we pray that this morning, amen.